forgot. From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview here at Family Research Council. I'm sitting in for Tony today. It is my pleasure to be with you. As always, when I get a chance to do this, and earlier this week, I had the pleasure of being in the great state of South Dakota with the Family Heritage Alliance. A couple of dinners there on Monday and Tuesday night, and so many of you came up to say hello. And it's just a blessing to be part of this community, though it is certainly Tony's show. Uh, the chances that I get to be with you every evening and now meet you in person as well. Just want to say thank you for those of you who did that. And uh, it's great to be with you every chance I get, including tonight, this Friday. A few reminders, really importantly, as you know, it is election season. Election day is November 8th, and this election is without a doubt one of, if not the most consequential elections in our lifetime. They are all important. There is more at stake than ever before, and there are real differences between candidates up and down the ballot. Now, don't fill out your ballot without the best information available. In order to get that, text GUIDE, and that's G-U-I-D-E, to 67742 to receive a voter guide for your state. In fact, tell your friends, families, neighbors, small group, coworkers to text the word GUIDE to 67742 as well. You continue to do that every day. We know you love the service, and we are thrilled to offer it to you again. That's the word GUIDE to 67742. For the best voter information. Now, today on the show, reports that we have only a 25-day supply of diesel fuel came out this week. What does this mean for your family? What kind of impact will this news have on the elections that are now just two weeks away? We'll talk about that today. And speaking of elections, how should we vote like a Christian? David Clausen from the Center for Biblical Worldview will swing by to help us sort out some of the most difficult questions when it comes to Christians and voting later in the program. But first, the headlines. With the concerning news this week that the country's supply of diesel gas has reached historic lows, Republican members of the House Oversight Committee have raised concerns over reports that President Biden intends to impose an oil and gas export ban. In a letter to Energy Department Secretary Jennifer Granholm, the Republican lawmakers request all documents and information related to the Biden administration's potential plans to ban oil and gas exports, as well as the Energy Department's role in the potential misuse of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. How would a shortage of diesel fuel affect day-to-day -day life for working Americans? And how does the Biden administration's release of fuel from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve impact our nation's security? Joining me now to discuss this is U.S. Representative James Comer. He serves as the ranking member on the House Committee of Oversight and Reform and also serves on the House Committee on Education and Labor. He represents Kentucky's 1st District. Congressman Comer, good to see you today. Good to be here. Now, first, I want to talk about this letter uh, that you spearheaded. Why are you so concerned about the potential diesel shortage? Well, first of all, <clears throat> let's look at Joe Biden's energy plan. It, it's been terrible. Uh, it's affected every facet of our energy industry in a negative way. Uh, when you have uh, an administration that's trying to incorporate an unrealistic Green New Deal type energy policy, it's going to have negative consequences. And what we see now is a shortage of diesel. Uh, the Biden administration has already depleted our strategic uh, reserves, 
which is supposed to be uh, in, in a position for when we do have shortages or breakdowns in the supply chain or infrastructure breaks down. So we don't have a plan B with respect to shortage. So what the administration is trying to do now, without consulting with anyone, without having any committee hearings, without doing anything, is trying to ban exports. What they're doing continues to disrupt the market. And the, we want to know what they're basing these decisions on, who they're communicating with. Have they talked to anyone in the industry? Have they talked to anyone uh, that has any expert knowledge outside of being a government bureaucrat about how to solve this potential crisis? And it is a crisis. Uh, we, we saw what happened when we have a supply chain breakdown. Uh, and that was because uh, primarily because the ports were, were clogged up. Now, when there's going to be a shortage of diesel, to go along with another story that's not really gotten much press, and that's the fact that uh, at least 25% of the barges in America are uh, offline now because of uh, the shallow water in the Mississippi River. So the ports going into Mississippi along the, the, uh, the going into New Orleans along the Mississippi River, uh, that's been uh, decimated too because of a uh, drought that's affecting the, the, the depth of the river in the Mississippi. All of this is a perfect storm that uh, is going to negatively impact consumers even more. So we want to know what the Biden administration plan is. And sadly, I don't think there is a plan. And obviously, we haven't received an answer yet. Now, Congressman Comer, about the potential that oil exports would be banned. A lot of people don't understand oil markets. We might look at that and mm -hmm. say, well, we have energy issues ourselves. Let's not export it. Let's keep it for ourselves so we can be energy independent. Why is that not the result of banning oil exports? Well, I mean, you, you've got a situation where diesel is is a different product than uh, than petroleum. I mean, you've got a situation where uh, the administration is trying to do a one size fits all program uh, in an emergency situation that that's going to have an impact on all sorts of uh, uh, facets of the energy industry. We have a, a critical situation here with a shortage of diesel. If you limit all energy exports, you're gonna clog the market, then the, the, they're gonna stop production. If there's a sudden uh, increase in supply and they have nowhere to go with it, then they're gonna shut down production. Then it's gonna be turned off again and there's gonna be a shortage again. We've got markets dictate supply and demand, but what Joe Biden's trying to do is dictate supply and demand based around the election. The reason he depleted the strategic reserves is to try to temporarily lower the price of gas. Yeah. What we said when he did that is that's going to have a short-term impact that's going to lower the price of gas, but affect us negatively long-term. This same thing's going to happen if he uh, halts exports. It's going to disrupt the market. It's going to uh, create a short-term oversupply. Uh, the, the, the producers will react. They'll cut off production. And then we're going to be in worse shape than, than ever with a shortage of diesel and a shortage of, of energy as a whole. Congressman, you mentioned there the uh, somewhat regular now um, draining of the strategic oil reserves. What is that reserve? Why was it created? What was it intended for? It was intended for a situation like we're about to face with a shortage of, of gasoline. You remember uh, we've had hackers from other countries who have tried to disrupt our uh, pipelines, have tried to disrupt the production of our uh, refineries and, and those types of energy facilities. Uh, if they did that, uh, then that would temporarily reduce the supply, but we would have a strategic reserve right. that would uh, get us through for a few days while we got, got it back online, got the refineries back online. Now, if there's a shortage of diesel, then we don't have any backup plan. 
And what the administration's trying to do is have a short-term fix. And when I say short-term, I'm talking about a, a few days before the election that's going to negatively impact the, the entire energy industry for months to come. It's very difficult to uh, tinker with the supply and demand of the energy industry. It, it's, it's created to be able to produce that energy and be able to use it right then. Uh, when you turn the switch on and off like Joe Biden's trying to do, it completely disrupts the market and there's going to be supply shortages. It's going to be like during the Carter administration. You know, the Biden administration is starting to look a lot like the Jimmy Carter administration. And uh, for those that aren't old enough to remember, there were long lines for gasoline and, it, you know, the economy was in terrible shape and we had hyperinflation. This is what we're going to face again because of Joe Biden's terrible energy policy. And all we're simply asking for on the oversight committee is what is your plan? What's your plan A, plan B, plan C? What if plan A doesn't work? You know, what's the backup plan? And they don't have that because they're just trying to get through and put a Band-Aid on this situation until after the election. And that's going to bring disaster for our economy. And I want to get into that because this strategic oil reserve certainly was intended for emergencies, but... Uh, Recently, it's been used for political emergencies, which may not have been uh, the purpose. Now, Saudi Arabia's energy minister, uh, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, said that using the emergency plan now may cause problems in the future. Let's play clip six. It's everybody's choice. However, however, it is my profound duty to make it clear to the world that losing emergency stock may become painful in the months to come. Congressman, he's, uh, of course, speaking for OPEC. What is he referring to, do you think? Well, he's referring to the fact that that they could cut off production. What Joe Biden's done with his energy policy is he's taken America from being energy independent to being dependent on OPEC now. And that's nowhere we need to be. And what OPEC is, is implying is they may cut production. They want higher gas prices now that they control such a significant portion of the energy industry again because america is now once again dependent on opec they can they can cut off production you know they can wake up one morning and say you know what let's all have a couple of weeks off and let's not uh, produce anything here now the united states doesn't have anything in reserve because joe biden sold it all to china to try to temporarily lower gas prices to get his poll numbers back up and we're in a disastrous situation That, along with what I mentioned earlier on the Mississippi River with the supply chain, uh, we can't have another supply chain crisis in America, but it looks like that's where we're headed. And it's 100 percent because of this administration's terrible energy policy. Well, and it does seem to be all election related. And of course, he's been fighting this narrative about increasing gas prices, increasing energy costs generally. Yesterday, President Biden said the prices have actually fallen since he took office. Let's play clip two. And because of the action we've taken, gas prices are declining. We're down $1.25 since the peak at this summer, and they've been falling for the last three weeks as well, as well, and adding up real savings for families. Today, the most common price of gas in America is $3.39, down from over $5 when I took office. Congressman Comer, was gas $5 when President Biden took office? No, uh, it was half that. And whoever wrote that teleprompter could probably be indicted in any of the 50 states right now, including Washington, D.C., for that big of a uh, lie. And this administration, if they really believe 
that gas prices are lower, then uh, they're more out of touch than I thought. And I haven't given them a real high uh, approval rating thus far. Look, we've got a terrible energy policy in America. This Biden administration keeps going backwards. They keep trying to put Band-Aids on the fact that they have done everything wrong with respect to energy. The solution to energy in America is for the government to get out of the way and let our great energy producers produce energy. Let us have more drilling permits. Let us have more fracking ability. Let us be able to uh, burn coal. Let us be able to have an all of the above energy policy in America that's sourced in America. But yet, what Joe Biden's trying to do is drastically change everything to electric vehicles when there's no capacity to do that. He's trying to cut off permitting uh, on federal lands. He has. He canceled the Keystone Pipeline. He's, uh, he's increased fines on our offshore drillers. He's banning fracking. I mean, all of this has had a disastrous effect on the price of gasoline, which has created more inflation in America. Now we have a shortage of diesel which is going to magnify the supply chain crisis. And it's just one crisis after another. It's hard to imagine how much damage one person can do in two years as president of the United States. But we're seeing that every day. Congressman Comer, uh, so much I want to get to with you. We're out of time. 15 seconds. The election is less than two weeks away. What's going to happen? I feel real good about it. You can feel the momentum on the side of Republicans. I think we're going to win as many as 30 seats. In the House, we just need six to uh, get a new Speaker of the House. And I believe the Senate's going to do it, too. I, I'm predicting 51 Republican Senate seats. So I think it's going to be a great night for Republicans. Congressman Comer, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. Coming up next, we're going to continue the conversation on the energy crisis with an expert in the field. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview.
Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Tony will be back in the chair with you on Monday. Well, as we were discussing before the break, the cold winter months approaching, the U.S. government's strategic inventory of diesel fuel is at its lowest seasonal level ever, with some reports indicating the U.S. has fewer than 25 days of supply left. How will this affect American working families? How did we get here? Joining me now to discuss it all is Dave Walsh. He's a former CEO of Mitsubishi Hitachi Power Systems. Dave, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Good to have you. Good to appreciate having me, Joe. We're glad to have you. Uh, we need your insight. Uh, this headline we see, 25 days of diesel fuel left. Most of us do not make a habit of tracking how much diesel fuel there is in the country. Put this in context for us. How big of an emergency is this? Well, diesel fuel is essential to our life as we know it, industrially, on a personal level. All durable goods are shipped in vehicles using diesel fuel. All foods are shipped. The entire intermodal rail system between states is diesel-powered, diesel locomotives, black start engines that drive the uh, power generation system in the background to keep the lid, the, 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 the grid stable, are diesel-fired black start backups. Diesel's at the core of everything, um, in, industrially and farming, of course. Uh, farm machinery is entirely run by diesel. Uh, bus systems in cities are run by diesel. So we're um, we're at uh, globally the lowest level of uh, global inventory since 1982, despite having 3.4 billion more people on Earth since 1982. We are at the lowest supply ever. This 25.4 day supply. Um, there are there are some uh, not entirely negative reasons for that. We're coming out of a fall outage season. Typically in refineries, the turnaround season is in uh, September October. That refineries tend to be down for maintenance. That's we're coming out of that. So there's some uh, good news there. But despite that, we're at the lowest level uh, per day of uh, capacity that we've been ever. And we're heading into a fall, a winter, late fall, winter heating season. We're in the Northeast and Upper Midwest. Diesel fuel is used a lot for winter heating. So, you know, some concern we may have some shortages. Now, in normal times, when things are going well, what kind of reserve of diesel, supuel, diesel fuel supply would we expect to have? Well, what, what this number is, is the inventory across the industry of manufacturers or refiners. Typically, we'd have, uh, on the East Coast, we'd have about 47, uh, 44 million barrels uh, on hand. Right now, we have about 24.4 million barrels. So we're, we're low by, by about half of what a typical supply would be at this time of the year. 
you know, despite coming out of an outage season, right now we typically have 44 million barrels. We have about a little less than uh, 24 million right now. So it is a bit of a problem. Is there a reason to think that we're going to catch up? Do our refinery capacity, is it there? So we're going to, we're going to get that cushion back? Or do you expect to see it shrink? Is there a real risk that we're going to run out? Well, we were we were about this low back in early May. So this cyclically did happen about six months ago. Um, the winter season is a little bit worrisome, again, because we're heading into, you know, what appears to be it's been a fairly cool early fall. And if we have a cold winter in the northeast and upper Midwest, we, we could run into some supply issues. Um, pricing is high. We've had we've had six major refineries shutter in the 2020-2021 period. You know, we had very low demand in that recession we had in March through August of 20. Coming when COVID hit really hard, things were shut down. A lot of refineries were closed. Six of them were closed permanently coming out of that. One in New Mexico, California, one in North Dakota, one in Wyoming, Shell in Louisiana, and then the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery was closed. All these do diesel fuel and collectively produce about 750,000 barrels per day of diesel fuel. So we're, we're short on national capacity significantly because of that in refining space. We had been also a pretty big importer from Russia as late as uh, February this year. We had uh, 1.6 million barrels come from there. That's That stopped. So um, places like the UAE have stepped up. We're also an exporter. You know, that it's, it's, we're in a complicated energy business. We are, we do remain a dominant energy player, despite the actions of the administration to, in the long run, curtail that. We remain a big player. We export uh, 11.4 million barrels a day of product, including diesel product, to Central and South America to this day. So we are also a net exporter of uh, oil in a very large way. Uh, you know, there's been some discussions folks have had about curtailing that, but um, problems with that are if you if you want to be a major player and you want to be energy dominant, you can't just withdraw from the table with your your customers who who are foreign in Mexico and Central America, South America, and expect that they'll be there for you if you abandon them. So we have to think very carefully about restricting exports. So, there's been some discussion of that. Hopefully, we don't need to look at that. So you can't just say, you know, we don't have any more to sell. We're going to keep it for ourselves because that creates other problems. Uh, we're yeah. talking to Dave Walsh, yeah, the former CEO of Mitsubishi Hitachi Power Systems. And Dave, you've mentioned some of the impacts potentially on a heating supply in the Northeast and the Upper Midwest that depend on diesel fuel. Uh, what other impacts could the average American family experience if this shortage were to get worse? Well, again, farm machinery is run by diesel, diesel power, 99% of it. Uh, the rail system inter interstate is run based on diesel locomotives. The 18-wheeler deliveries the grocery stores receive are diesel almost entirely. That that That's a bit of a worry. I mean, if we actually would go short of this critical commodity, we'd have um, we'd have food supply issues on deliveries, um, and, and, and that, that would be a big problem in addition to the heating problem. So... It, it, it's important that this doesn't turn into a crisis. Um, you know, at the end of the day, throttling exports would then probably, unfortunately, have to be looked at right now. You know, we're, we've still got some cushion with the inventory that's there nationally. But uh, and again, that's not a that's not a government controlled inventory. That's the inventory that the the primary refiners of, of diesel product have. So um, it, it's not really controlled by the government, so to speak.
Uh, Dave, I'm hoping that we can hold you over into the next segment because I want to continue this conversation. There's a lot more to get to here, including some comments that Secretary John Kirby made about the situation because, of course, diesel is a necessary component for military operations. And he has uh, he has a, a big interest in what's going on diesel wise very quickly. Is this situation, and I, I want to maybe tease this and we can ask this after the break. We've talked about the drawdown on the strategic oil reserve. And I want to find out, is that similar or related, unrelated to this diesel shortage? Uh, it's kind of unrelated. The uh, strategic petroleum reserve is crude oil. Uh, there really okay. isn't a diesel reserve. But to his point, though, it, he's contradicting the rest of the administration. Diesel I'm going to stop you now. Dave, I'm sorry. We're out of time. I want you to finish that answer, but we're going to do it when we come back right after the break here on Washington Watch. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. We are continuing our conversation about the shortage of diesel fuel and the energy crisis generally with Dave Walsh, who's the former CEO of Mitsubishi Hitachi Power Systems. Dave, thanks for hanging on with us. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm going to let you finish the answer to that question I asked. The connection, if any, between the strategic oil reserve and the shortage of diesel fuel that we are experiencing. Well, they're not directly connected. The oil reserve is unrefined petroleum. It can be refined and unrefined, can be, can be used to make diesel, but it's generally crude oil. The, um, the, the diesel issue, to the secretary's point, um, 
we, it's essential for military purposes. It's essential for national defense. Our entire ground-based fleet of tanks, jeeps, trucks, military vehicles are driven on diesel fuel. So, you know, for our administration to be, every department in the administration has been all over a strategy, all about eliminating fossil fuel dependence as rapidly as possible, from Jen Granholm, who runs energy, to the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, proclaiming that we need to abandon fossil fuels as soon as possible. It is a completely unrealistic posture when you look at the fundamental uh, nature of the importance of diesel fuel just for one fossil fuel and how dependent we are on it and how there is no replacement for that on the near-term horizon. There's no, there's no solar power or wind power that's going to replace our dependence on diesel fuel for military purposes and transportation intermodally in country of critical, critical goods. Um, so the, the restrictions the administration places on um, fossil fuel production are extremely unrealistic, given that 95% of all energy consumed in the country d does not emanate from solar and wind. It's, it's nuclear, it's oil and gas dominantly, it's natural gas, it's coal, it's hydroelectric to some degree, but 95% of our energy in the country is not, is not wind and solar. By the way, China is the same. They're identical in that respect. So um, the world is very, very, very much based on the use of fossil fuels and, and for the development of society and the goodness of mankind and, and, and for foodstuffs being delivered and made. Now, Dave, uh, we're talking a bit about the impact on the military and Defense Secretary John Kirby. He was asked about the diesel shortage. And here's what he had to say. Let's play clip seven. What are we doing to prepare for the winter and to ramp up supply of diesel? I'll, I'll take the question on the diesel because I just don't have the, the data on that in front of me. So let me take that and, and, uh, and we'll get back to you on that. Dave, what's your reaction to that? I think, I think uh, he certainly knows the criticality of it. Uh, he, he's a military guy. He understands the criticality of it. I think it's a way what he's doing is distancing himself from having to Compare and contrast the comments of Granholm, Secretary Granholm, Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Interior, all about ending our dependence on fossil fuels as soon as possible. That you, when you get down to where, if you will, the rubber meets the road, in a pun that makes sense here, in the military <laughs> hardware, you've got to have this. And there is no near-term replacement for it, such as there isn't for transportation of foodstuffs. So he, I, I think he wanted to separate himself from having to contradict most of the strategy, there is no energy strategy in the country. That's one of the problems. Commentary of all the department heads under the administration who are clamoring for a cessation of fossil fuel use nationally. It's irrational. It's not a rational policy. Dave, we've gotten the uh, political perspective on this shortage from the Hill. You're an industry guy, though. To you, in, in, your pers in your opinion, what degree to which, or to what degree was this avoidable or not? Is this a self-inflicted wound, or is this just the market doing what it does? The the, the market forces are at play here somewhat. We we have emerged pretty pretty well from the COVID downturn of 2020, and demand is up. Um, but the fact of the fact of no incentives in place for refiners to invest in increasing refining capacity. Oh, the fact of not going ahead with the Keystone XL pipeline, the material coming off that 880,000 barrels a day of material was bitumen, which is uh, 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 the kind of oil that comes from uh, the tar sands. Is just, it's ideal for manufacturing diesel as a downstream product. That was a, a large portion of that fuel supply coming from Alberta 
via the Keystone XL pipeline was going to be to make diesel fuel. Well, we, you know, we've stopped that. So that's a self-inflicted wound. Uh, the refiners not getting any incentives and, you know, upside such as wind and solar have monstrous economic incentives from the government. It, it really isn't a fair playing field. Yeah. Fossil fuels of this type have none. In fact, have severe restrictions. The EPA is going after now PEC. That's a chloriding agent used in making diesel. Uh, that they're they're attacking that all in favor of trying to convert the industry to biofuels, which are far less efficient and take a lot more energy to make. And the energy the energy value of biofuels, biodiesel, is about one ninth of the typical diesel fuel. So there's a lot of self-inflicted wounds by government policy that have, you know, driven negativity into this industry. Now, Dave, final question for you. We also know that OPEC has uh, cut production. President Biden asked them not to do so. Has is, is their their decision to cut production while we are also cutting our own production? Are we creating a noose that we can allow OPEC to hang us with in about thirty seconds? Yes, we are. You know, um, we we are acting by cutting our own production for other reasons, for the environmental reason. We are acting just like OPEC. We are acting like we're a member because we also began withdrawing production consciously, intentionally with the with the inauguration of this administration in January of 21. So we've been taking the same actions as we're complaining about OPEC taking. So we have a different reason or different rationale, but we're doing the same thing. So it's very that frustrating. Is- That's an incredible analysis to realize that we're just OPEC for environmental purposes. Dave Walsh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Coming up next, our weekly worldview conversation, how to vote like a Christian. We'll talk to David Clawson about it when we come back. Stay with us. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742.
Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony. In most of the country, it's already election season and you need your voter guide. To get yours delivered instantly to your phone, text the word guide. That's G-U-I-D-E to 67742 and get the voter guide for your state right now. Again, it's text the word guide to 67742. Now with some additional voter help, With two weeks remaining before, just under two weeks, in fact, remaining before the midterm elections, the latest polls reveal dozens of races, including seven U.S. Senate races, within the margin of error. Or you might say the margin of effort. Who's going to work the hardest to win those races? At the Family Research Council, we encourage all Christians to pray, vote, and stand for biblical values. But what should we say to someone who wants to drill deeper and ask what someone really means when they say, vote biblical values, or vote your conscience. What does that mean? Joining me now to discuss this on our weekly worldview segment is David Clausen, director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at the Family Research Council. David, good to see you. Hey, great to be with you, Joseph. Well, it's great to have you. I think you're going to maybe provide the final answer to the age-old question, is Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? What say ye, David? Well, I don't know if I can help with that, but I do think it's important, uh, vitally important, Joseph, uh, for Christians to vote their values. You've heard, and what are those values? And I think we can flush that out. And you've heard me say this before, you know, there's a lot of issues uh, that we talk about. And there's a lot of issues that matter uh, and a lot of issues that affect people's lives. Uh, but there are certain issues where there's maybe not a chapter and verse uh, that we can bind someone's conscience on. Uh, but there are some issues uh, that there's a thus saith the Lord. There's a chapter and verse we can point to. And I think that if Jesus were here, uh, those would be the issues he would definitely tell us that he cares about and that those are issues that we should care about as well. Now, David, you wrote an article in the Washington Stand this week on this topic, and we can send people there uh, to, or to read that for themselves. But I want to break down some of the uh, discussion from that article. And you talked about kind of two groups of Christian voters, and you described them broadly as justice Christians and moral Christians. And you, desi- you define a justice Christian as someone who focuses on race, immigration, or economic ine- inequality, compared to a moral Christian that focuses on abortion, religious freedom, sexuality, kind of what we would describe as social conservative issues. 
Where do those categories come from? Do you think those are helpful in understanding voting blocks within the church? Yeah, so those those categories, they, they come from a, a group of uh, Christians actually based in Atlanta, uh, who uh, they're actually former Democrat staffers and strategists who have kind of introduced some of this, uh, some of that parlance into the discussion. And uh, I, I think it's, in one sense, it's helpful um, to think about issues of justice and issues of morality. Uh, those are issues that I think the Bible is really clear about, that, you know, we should, as Christians, we are people who care about justice. Uh, and we also care about morality. The Bible spells out a very clear understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, I, I differ a little bit, though, when it comes to just talking about justice Christians and morality Christians, and we're kind of in those two camps. And what people who talk about those will say, they'll kind of describe those two camps and then say, you know, go look at the issues and vote your conscience. And as Christians, I don't think we have to, nor do I think we should choose between issues of justice and issues of morality. Uh, as Christians, we care about any issue that God cares about. We care about any issue that the Bible deals with. So I think we actually need to go a layer deeper than just talking about justice and morality and kind of leaving it at that. So where does this framework come from? Because I, th- I would agree with you, and I think that's intuitive to most of us, is that Christians would generally describe themselves, I hope, as I'm for I'm a moral Christian in the sense that I hope I embrace God's moral standards and God's morality, but I'm also a justice Christian because you can't embrace God's moral standards if you're not pro-justice. So where does this framework come from? What's the, what's the purpose of it? Yeah, it's, yeah I think the, the framework, again, and I'm sure others have articulated it. Uh, there, recently, it's been articulated in a, a book written by some guys who are based in Atlanta. And I, I think that the focus on these two camps is essentially, um, you know, there. And when you break it down by party, you map it on to the two-party system. The, the general idea is, well, there are some issues that are justice issues, such as maybe immigration or caring about what happens in our prison populations. Those are justice issues that are maybe more historically associated with the emphasis that the Democrat Party puts on those issues, whereas morality issues such as uh, sexuality and religious freedom and abortion, those are more morality issues that Republicans uh, have more historically focused on recently. And so I think what these guys are getting at is, hey, look, the Democrats might be good on some issues, Republicans are good on some issues. Jesus wasn't, you know, a Republican or a Democrat. Therefore, Christians can talk about these issues and maybe come to different conclusions. So I think maybe some of the okay. motivation behind this framework is to allow Christians to, to vote either way uh, in any given election. Well, I might be more cynical um, than that because it seems to me, I mean, of course, Jesus, I, though I, I started the question, the, the segment with the question, is Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? And of course, we understand that Jesus transcends uh, party party politics, right? He didn't start either of them. Both the parties are, are subject to his ultimate authority. But it seems to me that this framework, and you can tell me if you think I'm correct about this, is a way to try to convince people that they have a they are morally free to vote for Democrats, despite the Democrats' uh, clear opposition to God's standards with respect to sexuality and all those things, because the argument would be that the Democrats party is closer to God's standard on justice. Is that a fair description of it? I think that's a charitable take uh, on the, the on this framework, Joseph. And I agree. I think uh, this is what folks are trying, who talk in these terms, are trying to do. 
Um, so I think that's a fair take on it. Yeah. Is that is that a problem? I mean, what, what's the and, and I think the, the, the question that this begs is, um, is there a hierarchy? of issues. When we look at scripture, I mean, how do we determine? I mean, because of course we know that we look at any two candidates, regardless of who they are, we're going to be picking between two sinners. So, you know, the the Messiah is not on the ballot. And, you know, stereotypically people say that, right? It's a cliche. Jesus isn't on the ballot. So I'm always picking between two evils, which I'm not sure is true. But as, as Christians trying to apply the mind of Christ to our ballot, and we realize these people are imperfect. Nobody has a corner on God's truth. And we're probably, we are all seeing through a mirror dimly. And uh, as sincerely as we may be trying to understand God's will for humanity and how that applies to law, we're probably all doing so imperfectly. So does that mean that there's really no difference and that we just have a clean conscience and do our best and God doesn't care? And there's really nothing from scripture to help us guide um, which issues are most important to him? Yeah, and, and Joseph, that's why I think that framework that we've just been talking about ultimately is insufficient uh, for a, a Christian political engagement that is uh, faithful to the Bible. Um, uh, there's a theologian named Jonathan Lehman uh, who has written about these issues, and I think his framework maybe is a little bit more helpful. He talks about straight line issues and jagged line issues. Uh, and what he means by that, there are some issues where there's a chapter and verse we can point to. Uh, such as thou shalt not murder. That's what the Bible says. It's a pretty straight line to thou shalt not murder to don't kill babies. Uh, there are other issues um, that the Bible clearly talks about. You know, we should have concern for the poor, but it's more of a jagged line to get from that biblical principle to policy prescription. And, and so straight line issues versus jagged line issues, I think that's a more helpful way because it forces us to look at biblical principles and think about what are the policy prescriptions. And, you know, it didn't used to be this way, Joseph, 20, 30, 40 years ago. The parties were similar on a lot of these issues. But increasingly, when it comes to straight line issues, again, biblical principle to policy prescription, the parties are very different on a lot of those issues. And in my view, Joseph, that should weigh heavily on Christians as they enter the voting booth. Well, David, I dare say that is not difficult if one wants to, to make a straight line rather jagged or crooked, right? If I'm looking to make the argument that the Bible is not clear on something, I can make that case. And in fact, we have lots of people who are making that those arguments, and we've made that. But of course, uh, you will find the theological arguments now that, uh, of course, God loves same-sex relationships. He loves it when people change their gender. He loves abortion. Raphael Warnock, the pro-choice pastor, we've covered some of these issues, right? So aren't they all a jagged line, a crooked line issue, which then just leaves it up to us. I mean, how does this get resolved? Yeah, it would seem that way if you listen to some people talk. But, you know, and I, I talk about this in a book that I wrote that uh, called Biblical Principles for Political Engagement that people can find for free uh, at the Center for Biblical Worldviews website. Uh, there are some issues uh, that are really, really clear. Um, the one issue, the two issues that I always think of, Joseph, is the life issue and issues related to sexuality. Again, this is for those of us who are Christians who care about the authority of Scripture, who believe that it's breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. And when the Bible tells us that all people are made in God's image and have value and dignity, as a Christian, I believe that should bind my conscience in, in some way that I can't support policies or politicians uh, that are going out of their way to not just uh, make abortion available, but to make it uh, subsidized by taxpayer money. Same thing with the sexuality yeah. issues or parental rights. I think the Bible's really, really clear on what God's design for human flourishing is in yeah. those areas. And when you 
co-opt that. Uh, it doesn't matter if you, you know, paste a, a Bible verse on there out of context. Uh, we need to follow the Bible uh, in where we're going in the voting booth. I think that's really, really important. And David, we've come to this point in a lot of our conversations, but I think the difference, you know, you, you talk about this kind of straight line, jagged line framework, and really, uh, we can't read, look inside someone's heart. God knows that. But for each of us as voters, um, there are differences of opinion that are sincere, right? But there are also times in which we want to find a rationalization to not believe what it appears that God has said. So we come up with some creative, newfangled argument that sounds somewhat academic and allows us to kind of remain and feel pious while basically rejecting what God had said. Whether that is our motivation or not, only we really know, we and God know, whether we are sincerely trying to find his truth and apply it to the world around us. But Lord knows there are plenty of people who will help us rationalize something else, right? Go back to Genesis 3. That's exactly what Eve did at the very beginning, even though she knew what God said. She found all these reasons why it was desirable to make one wise for her to eat that apple in the garden. So as she had concluded, she actually had a better idea than God's original idea, right? And so ultimately, it comes down to us. Um, what is our the intention of our heart? And I think that's what we really need to be asking ourselves. Am I trying to submit myself to God's will, or am I trying to figure out a way to make Scripture and God's will submitted to my desires and what I'm what I'm looking to do? And we can't know each other's hearts, but for each of us, that needs to be uh, what our goal is. David, I think all of this kind of begs the question about being a single issue voter. Do you think that's a, a, a correct position biblically? Is that the wrong position? Is it wrong if somebody says, I just feel so deeply about this issue that I can't vote for somebody who disagrees? Right. I do think we need to be doing triage. Um, well, you know, you've heard the term theological triage. There's first-tier issues that you have to believe, and if you don't believe those, you're really not in the faith. I think in, pol in politics, we, we need to do triage as well. And I think as Christians, out of love of neighbor, we should care about a whole host of issues. Uh, poverty, economics, the military. We, we, as Christians, we care about all these things because they affect people made in God's image. But I do think when it comes to triaging, I think the issue of human life and, and for a long time in this country, both parties were, you know, relatively ag agreed on that issue. Not so anymore. Uh, but I do think if there's one issue that should drive a Christian in the voting booth is what have you done with the most vulnerable among us? And again, regrettably, Joseph, I wish both parties agreed on the importance of protecting unborn children. And so I think that is a first tier issue. I do think there's other issues that Christians do care about, should care about. Um, but I do think some sort of triage should be at play when we think about voting. Rather than talking about them as single-issue voters, I like to think of some issues as minimum qualifications, right? Mm -hmm. That there might be good things about people. Um, somebody may be excellent at CPR, but I still will not hire them as my, chi my child's babysitter if they have a history of child abuse. Yeah. As good as you may be at that, and I can see that as helpful in an emergency, if you have other things in your past on your record that disqualify you from being a babysitter, I'm going to look somewhere else. Yeah. And I think we as Christians, as we vote, 
don't necessarily need to think of it as being a single issue voter, which is rigid, rigid and dogmatic, is that we need to have a bare minimum standard for what we expect of our elected officials. Um, and I, in, in a spiritual sense, it's like, if you can't do two plus two in math, I'm not going to trust you to design you know, my house or do some calculus, right? If you can't get the really basic stuff right, um, you're going to have difficulty doing the more complicated things. And I think that's true of our elected officials as well. So, um, David, final thought on this. Um, Philippians 3.18, uh, Paul says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, this idea of seeing people as enemies of the cross of Christ, we only got a minute left. Mm -hmm. Are those people ever on the ballot? And is there a way to know? Yeah, I think those folks are on the ballot. Um, and I think you, you just need to, to look at what they're saying. Uh, you need to look at what they're advocating for. I think it requires discernment. I think it, desire, it requires wisdom and prayer. Uh, but that's one of the things that FRC tries to do is provide resources uh, to help people make those decisions because I think there are clearly wolves in sheep's clothing on some of these ballots. And we need to be aware of that and pray through that. And that's exactly right. And it is not, it's not, not loving your neighbor to disqualify someone from your ballot because of the things they say, right? Yeah. I mean, in, in many ways, that is an act of love by making sure the people, and, and, and James describes it as whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And with respect to our leaders as a country, as a community, we don't want those people in elected office. So it is an act of love of our neighbor to make sure to the extent it is up to us that that doesn't happen. David Glossom, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Joseph. And friends, we thank you for being with us today and every day here on Washington Watch. Have a great weekend. Make sure until Monday, you fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.